You're listening to Beat Autoimmune and Thrive, the podcast all about reversing and preventing autoimmune conditions so you can live your most vibrant life as soon as possible. We talk about autoimmune root causes, actionable solutions, and inspirational healing stories. I'm Palmer Kippola, and I used to have MS. Today, I'm an author, a speaker, a functional medicine certified health coach, a pickleball player, and nature lover who's helped thousands of people reclaim their health and their best lives. Let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by one of my health heroes, Dr. Joseph Pizzorno. Dr. Pizzorno is a naturopathic physician, educator, researcher, and expert spokesman. He's currently chair of the board of the Institute for Functional Medicine. He founded Bastyr University, a leading university for naturopathic medicine in 1978. He was appointed by both Presidents Clinton and Bush to two prestigious government commissions to advise the president and Congress on how to integrate natural medicine in the healthcare system. Wonderful. He is an intellectual, political, and academic leader in medicine, and he's been one for more than four decades. He's also been widely honored, as with the Linus Pauling Award by the Institute for Functional Medicine. He's also the author of the important and excellent book, The Toxin Solution. And I love that he makes important connections between toxins and disease processes, and most importantly, that he helps us to gain awareness and ultimately take better control of our health outcomes with daily natural lifestyle strategies. Welcome, Dr. Prezordo. It's a joy to have you. Well, thank you for the very kind introduction. And thank you even more for all the important work you're doing to give people pathways to get back to health. Oh, well, right back Mm -hmm. at you. I mean, I'm really on your team and you have been a leader in this field for four decades. So you have seen a lot. And I, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily going to start here, but I think this is an excellent place mm-hmm. to talk about type two diabetes and the changes that you have seen in your own evolution as a naturopathic doctor. Take us back to what you used to see when somebody came to your office. Oh, uh, good question. So I think everybody's aware that we have a serious problem with diabetes and insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, all these kinds of problems. What's interesting is if you go back 50 years ago to when I was a student, diabetes affected less than 1% of the population. Now 10% of people already have diabetes and one third are projected to get diabetes in their lifetime. What happened? So I started diving into it. And as a matter of fact, diving into that is what made me so aware of the environmental toxin problem. Because I was looking at the diabetes and I said, well, of course, well, people are eating too much sugar. Therefore, that's why I have diabetes. Right. But if you look at the sugar consumption, it it didn't change during the diabetes epidemic. It didn't go up a bunch, as you would expect. It's pretty much stable. So it wasn't sugar. Then you look at, well, how about obesity? Yep, obesity has gone up dramatically. And obese people have a lot more diabetes. But here's the kicker. There's some research done by a woman in South Korea by the name of Ducky Lee. And she noticed about, about 15 years ago now, she noticed that obese people in the bottom 10% of body load of environmental toxins don't have an increased risk of diabetes. Here we know obesity causes diabetes apparently, but there's no toxins, you don't get the diabetes. 
And I started looking into this. Well, that's interesting. So I started, started looking at toxin after toxin, finding that as the body load of the toxin goes up, so does diabetes. But so does a lot of other things too, like autoimmune disease, okay? And there's so many examples of these chronic diseases we're suffering now being directly correlated with body load environmental toxins. Wow, that is so fascinating. And it goes against conventional thinking that, you know, diabetes is driven by sugar and obesity. And like, no, not so fast. Let's think about this. Yeah, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that excess sugar is good for people. I'm not saying being overly I know. Over, overweight is good for people. I mean, but as the primary cause of diabetes, no, they're not. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. So one could say, if you are a type two diabetic, or you have insulin resistance, or you're heading in that direction, to not only address your diet, what you're saying is you might want to check out your toxic burden to see yes. what else is going on under the hood, right? Well, let's think this through very, very, very simply. So what happens first is people get insulin resistance, okay? And then the pancreas has to overproduce insulin to get sugar into the cells to keep us alive. A great example of how remarkably adaptive our bodies are. So why do people have insulin resistance? Well, there's all kinds of reasons for it. One of them is many of these chemicals we're being exposed to in the modern world bind to and block insulin receptor sites. That sounds like insulin resistance, doesn't it? And so it turns out that we're doing it to ourselves. And we're doing it to ourselves with chemicals we're exposed to every day. Wow. Well, this is why you're here. I am so excited about having this conversation because while it seems so daunting, and when we think about the autoimmune epidemic, we think about an increase in these external environmental toxins. And true, there's a lot that people can't do about this passive exposure. But on the other hand, there is so much that we can do. And I can't wait to dig into some of the solutions because those high leverage things that people can do on a daily basis can help to bring the toxic load dramatically down. Do I have that about right? Exactly right. Okay. Okay, great. Well, I love starting in the in the beginning. And I think it's helpful to frame the conversation because we've got this big problem. And we have, you know, other things that go along with our ability to detoxify. So can you help us to kind of, you know, organize our thinking in terms of what we need to think about when we want to minimize toxins? I like to, but let me start with kind of a big picture observation first. If you look at the history of medicine, there's been two basic schools of thought. One school of thought is humans are the victims of their environment and the bodies make mistakes. The role of a doctor is to recognize what disease a patient has, diagnose it and treat that disease, take control. But there's another school, Hippocrates was part of that school that said, the body has tremendous ability to be healthy. So if a person is suffering from some disease or some symptoms or something, that means that the body hasn't been able to respond to it. Why? What does the body need to respond, or is there something in the body that has to be removed? So let's promote the health of the person. Yes, the disease is there, but let's promote the health of the person. Then you started looking at, well, what's necessary for the health of the person? There's three components, genetics, but genetics only accounts for 15% of disease, one 5%, one, one out of six diseases. How about what, well, how about the rest 85%? How about nutritional deficiencies nutritional excesses, and environmental toxins. And why are the environmental toxins so problematic? 
is because our bodies are basically enzyme machines. And those enzymes, the way that the toxin cause trouble is by poisoning the enzymes. Mm. So if our enzymes are poisoned, how do we expect our bodies to work when the basic metabolism can't go forward? Okay, so there's kind of an overview perspective. I love it. Okay. Now, when we think about toxins, you have to think about toxins in kind of two types. Now, you might say, well, metals versus chemicals, yeah, that has some value, but far more useful is persistent versus non-persistent. Mm. So non-persistent means that the toxin we're being exposed to, either we were exposed to it as we evolved as a species, and so therefore developed the ways to get rid of it, or it's similar enough to something we're already able to get rid of that we they're gone very quickly. But the persistent toxins, which are almost virtually all either man-made chemicals or heavy metals, it's hard for the body to get rid of them. And so the strategies that would work for non-persistent toxins are going to be quite different than for persistent toxins. So non-persistent toxin, something like bisphenol A, half-life in the body is only around two days. Arsenic, half by time in the body, half-life in the body is about two days. When I say half-life, that means how long does it take to get rid of half of it? And the toxicologist basically saying it takes four half-lives to get something out of the body. Okay, so with a non-persistent toxin, you start avoiding it very religiously. In about a week, most of it's going to be gone. And so you can start seeing benefits right away. But the persistent toxins, the half-lives in the body are measured in months to years to decades. So when I say decades, what I mean? How about PCBs, mm. polychlorinated biphenyls, which, by the way, are highly predictive of rheumatoid arthritis in women, autoimmune rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, so half lives of those things are years to decades. So you go to local, go to your local restaurant, buy some of their farmed raised fish on the menu. Don't do that. Don't do that. And the PCBs in that farm raised fish is are probably going to be worth you the rest of your life. <sighs> wow! Wow! Let's just put a an exclamation point on this one. Because I'm not sure that people know that Atlantic salmon, the word Atlantic is code for farmed. Yep. Okay. So if it does not say wild, my friends, it must be farmed. So we have to think like this. And I was tried to, someone, a fishmonger tried to convince me that Scottish salmon was not really farmed. And I did my own investigation and found that they had a very creative and very clever way of raising the salmon by like pulling it behind the boats, Hmm. but they were still giving it, let's see, corn, wheat, and stuff. Yeah. The problem is the food. It's not not that's being farmed. The problem is the food they're feeding them. Right. Makes a huge difference. Right. Oh, I'm so glad you said this. So PCBs takes decades, years to decades to get rid of. So that'll make you think twice before getting yes. that Atlantic or f- farm salmon. Yes. And I, I just want to put in another point here. We will get to the detox um, piece of this towards the end of what we're talking about. I wanted you to start with the problem so that people right. are really aware. And this kind of shocks you into a level of awareness that, oh my goodness, this matters a lot. And yes, there are things that you can do to turn the ship around, but to just be aware, it's my understanding from your book, 
that farm salmon is the number one source for PCBs in our bodies. Is that yes. correct? And not only that, but in particular, uh, and the worst of them are Ireland farm salmon. salmon. Is that right? <clears throat> the worst, yes. Okay. All right. So you learned it here. I did not know that. Um, so we've got the persistent, we've got the non-persistent. Then we also frame it in the sense of um, there is what's outside of us and then what's inside of us it would be another way of framing the toxin conversation, right? Because when people sure. think of toxins, they think of what's out there <clears throat> instead of really thinking about what's inside. And that can right. be anything which we can talk about in terms of what's going on in your gut and what's escaping the gut that should not yes. be escaping the gut. Yes. So if you want to give us a, a frame on on that, I think you call them category one and category two types of toxins. <laughs> okay, well... You know, we can look at the, that way too, internally produced toxins versus externally produced toxins. So let's go to the internally produced ones. A, a very One of the smartest doctors I know, Dr. Sid Baker, uh, made a comment at a lecture that about 25% of the energy we produce every day is used for detoxification. Wow. Because even normal physiological processes are producing molecules that once they've done their job, we got to get rid of them. Yeah. I mean, think about hormones. You know, think about the testosterone for men and estrogen for women. So after they do their job and given these are characteristics, now the body's got to break them down. Now, when the body's functioning properly, it breaks down estrogen to an anti-carcinogenic version. But when the body's not functioning properly, based on diet and toxins, we produce we when we detoxify estrogen, it's through a it produces a pro-carcinogenic compound. Same thing with testosterone for men. So it turns out that, yes, we have these very important internal processes for detoxification. I mean, we have a lot of them, but they're dependent upon the nutrients that they need to be there. And if the nutrients aren't there, or if those enzymes are being poisoned by environmental toxins, things are going to go the wrong direction. Yeah. Oh, that that's so interesting. And, and it brings me back to the top of the conversation where you were framing things that part of this whole conversation is about our ability to neutralize or excrete those toxins. And yes. then how committed are we to living a detox lifestyle? Yes. And so those are, in your words, I would believe essential to this right. whole conversation. Yes. And, and going back to what you said about the gut. So if our gut is full of the wrong kinds of bacteria, well, they produce molecules that are toxic for us. So one of the tests that used to run a lot when I was in primary care was called the Obermeyer test and measure something called indoles and scatols in the urine. And they're produced by having clostridium type bacteria in the gut that then broke down the amino acid tryptophan into these toxic chemicals. So I say this to patients, they say, okay, well, fine, doc, what do you say? And so, well, they have another name. They're called putrazine and cadaverine. Oh my goodness. Okay, and then we say that also patients, <laughs> Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because they're, they're basically toxic substances. So if you have the wrong bacteria in your gut, now you're wasting some of your detoxification function and capability on chemicals coming from the gut that should not be coming from the gut. So when I talk in my, my book, The Toxic Solution, I say, well, before you go on a detox program, make sure your organs elimination are functioning properly, the gut, the liver, and the kidneys. And so many people are being sick because they have really toxic guts. Matter of fact, the old time nature paths, what they did was they primarily taught people how to eat properly and how to get the guts functioning properly. 
quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's still, and I collaborate with a, a couple of brilliant naturopaths today, and that's still the focus. Good. Like we will not move to, for example, chronic Lyme until we have really, really worked on the gut. And sometimes that takes a lot longer than clients want, right? People want to get over this. Oh, I've been at this for a month or two. Aren't I finished yet? Like this is, you know, sometimes the problem takes years, if not decades to form. Why would we think that the, the solutions, whether it's they've got parasites or yeast or mycotoxins and so forth in the gut, this is a problem. So it takes a while. Well said. Well okay. Said. So we and, always and, want to make go further. One of the advantages of this kind of this foundational, well, you can, you can choose to focus on the disease or you focus on the health. It's amazing how often when you just focus on health, even if it does not appear to be exactly relevant, we focus on health, now the body can do its job. And surprising number of times, wherever the disease was, it starts going away. Yeah. It's, it's one thing that I write again and again in my book. It it's almost seems too simplistic, but the number one thing that I suggest is to remove things because sometimes the blockage or the, the problem to get to health is that there's something in the way that we've got to get rid of. And once we get rid of it, it's like a, a beaver dam, right? Once we clear that, things can just get back on track oftentimes, right? Foundational nature by the concept, remove the obstacles to cure. There you have it. Beautifully said. You, you know, you don't always have to figure out exactly what you need to do to intervene because sometimes just letting the body function where it's supposed to, that's all you need to do. I love that. And that makes me think of a question that I was going to leave towards the end, but I want to bring it up sooner. And that is testing because not everybody has access to a functional medicine or naturopathic physician. What do you, what are your thoughts on whether or not it's essential to get the data on what's going on in the gut, for example, or nutrient status versus just living this detox lifestyle and putting in the practices of health? What, what are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. You, you can approach this uh, kind of two ways. One, with lots of data and lots of objective tests or by applying basic principles. Now, I personally like doing objective tests uh, if they're available and if the patient can afford them because it's nice to be able to be able to kind of objectively measure what's going on. Okay, But you don't have to. Okay, um, So uh, in, in looking at toxins, for example, so you can measure the level of every toxin, difficult and expensive, or you can measure how much damage is happening to the body from toxins and monitor that. So if the measures of damage to the body are getting better, it means you're on the right track. If they're not improving, it means you're missing something. So there's two tests you can run. One's inexpensive and readily available from any doctor, and it's a liver enzyme test called GGTP. So that enzyme uh, used to be a part of standard panels as a way of determining if a person had hepatitis. Because when a person has hepatitis, the, you know, the, the cells in the liver become inflamed. They start leaking enzymes into the blood and it shows up in the blood. So, and GGT was one of the ones that was being measured. It's called either GTT or GTTP, uh, according to the lab, different abbreviations. But what's fascinating is that within the normal range, which is about 10 to 60, the GTT goes up in proportion to toxic load. And then as you decrease toxic load, it goes down. So 
let me give an example myself. So let me uh, let me actually let's talk about the diabetes again. Okay. So GGT uh, again, normal ten to sixty. People with a GGT between thirty and sixty have eight times as much diabetes as a person with a GGT below twenty. Right, a person, let's say that once again, a person with GGT in the range of 30 to 60 right. has eight times the risk risk of diabetes. Right, I mean, maybe, maybe between 30 and 40. 30 okay. and 40. Eight times risk. Okay. Between 40 and 60, it's 20 times the risk. Now that's normal. That would not be considered abnormal from any doctor running that test. Okay. But what it is, is... Uh, Another example of the body's remarkable ability to heal. Because what is GGT? It's the enzyme that recycles glutathione. Mm. And glutathione is the most important molecule in our bodies for protecting us from environmental toxins. And in many situations, being directly responsible for getting the toxins out of the body. So when we have more toxins, we produce more, G- more glut- GGT, so we have more glutathione. Now, there's a little caveat here. And that is about 10% of people don't upregulate GGT proportion of toxic load. And they're the ones I call the yellow canaries. They're the ones who are most easily damaged by the environmental toxins. So again, environmental toxin reactions at levels of toxins similar to everybody else. But everybody else, they got they the, the, the glutathione to get rid of it. They can't. So they get mm. more toxicity. There's another test that does not seem to be genetically determined. And that is urinary 8-O-H-D-G. So what is that? It's a measure of DNA damage. So as our DNA is getting damaged from oxidative stress, environmental toxins, whatever, um, that goes up in the urine. Now, that one does not seem to be genetically uh, determined. Unfortunately, there's not many labs that actually run it. Can you mention any that do? Well, doctor's data is an example of the lab that runs it. Okay. And, and so that's a test that I'm familiar with in terms of the toxic metals. It's a urinary test. I really right. like the provoked urine test for metals. Is it part of that provoked urine or do you have to ask them totally to run separate that test. in addition? Totally well, provoked separate. urine is to look for metal levels. Oh, well, this is a t- entirely separate uh, totally test. Totally different. And Dr. Dare runs it because when I was doing a corporate wellness program in Canada with several thousand people, I wanted to run that test, couldn't find a lab doing it. So I went to Dr. Dare and said, hey, I want to give you a thousand samples. Would you please develop? Would you please develop this test? So now it's available for everybody. I love it. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> really no, I really want to say thank you for on behalf of all of us. So those are two tests that people can do. GGT is part of a standard CBC panel, isn't it? Typically, well, it's a, so a standard blood screen. It blood. used to be a standard blood screen. Now many labs don't include it uh, as a standard oh. blood screen, but it's still easily available because. It's it's the the technology they're using to get those other results yeah. easily produces this one as well. Got it. So all you have to do is ask your your primary care provider right. when you have your blood drawn next, test your GGT or what you're calling GGTP based it, it, on yeah, it depends on the lab what they call it. The same thing though, and there's another test. I, I love this. The DNA damage levels the eight O H D G. 8-O, hot, dog. So O-H are capitalized. O-H. Is, is sub, and then G is capitalized. Got it. Got it. Got it. Wonderful. Well, I'll write this down so that people can see what that test yeah. is specifically. I love it. So those are tests that you would say as a baseline would be great for people if they can afford to do that 
to see what your toxic, what the toxins are doing specifically to your body. Because we know in this autoimmune population that I serve, glutathione levels are already rock bottom, right? So we're operating from a deficit if we have one of those autoimmune conditions. So I would say that this is probably a huge thing for people to know and then track over time. Yeah. So I'll give you a personal example. So when I first recognized the importance of this test, I tested myself um, a little over 10 years ago and I was at 27. And at that point, I thought, well, that's not too bad. But then I started seeing more and more research saying, wait a minute, that's higher than it should be. So I systematically just kept on cleaning up my life, being more careful, being orga- about organic, eat organically, grow my own food, more of my own food, throwing away all the plastic containers in our kitchen, putting in glass, putting in an air filter, putting in a water filter, the whole house. And step by step, it went from 27 to 24. And I just tested again a couple of weeks ago. It was down to 18. Wow. Okay. So that was telling me, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right. You're on so the right At this track. point, I think between 15 and 20 is pretty much the optimal, optimal range, as much as I can tell. Yeah. That may change as more research becomes available, but you want to get below 20 for sure. And by the way, my wife, who is even more careful than I am, hers is 13. Wow. That is so cool. And she's also an author. Do you want to tell us the book that she oh, yeah. wrote on osteoporosis? <laughs> if anybody has, uh, wants to have healthy bones, read her book called Your Bones. We have literally hundreds of letters and emails from women who had osteopenia or osteoporosis or osteoporosis followed her protocols and they got their bones back. Wow. I mean, just dramatic. It takes about six months to start seeing results. And within two years, we've had so many women who had osteoporosis and after two years, they're, they're normal bones. Oh, that is so hopeful. I love it. I love it. I love it. And you and Laura are living testimonies to oh, the work you. that you do. You thank know, you. you walk, you run the walk is what I should say. <laughs> you really, really do. I, I'm, I'm so appreciative. So please pass that on to her as well. I'm not well. running as much as I used, used to because <laughs> I just picked up too many basketball injuries. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to be, we have to be careful in, in yes. that regard. So can you tell us in, in your vast knowledge of toxins now, what are maybe the, the top five that we need to be most concerned about and then let's flip into, you know, what can we do about this? So I'll tell you my top five right now, but I want to be really honest, five years from now, it may be different yeah, uh, because the research is continuing to evolve. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're now, we're, now we're starting to see a lot of research, which is exciting. Yeah. And, but, and a caveat here that if you know, and you've already mentioned rheumatoid arthritis, which we know is a hallmark autoimmune disease, um, maybe speak to ones that you know are driving this autoimmune epidemic. Sure. So about two years ago, I wrote an editorial in IMCJ, that's Integrated Medicine and Clinicians Journal, where I'm the editor-in-chief. I wrote an editorial suggesting that the standard of care in primary medicine, primary care medicine, should include measurement of arsenic and, and lead levels. And why did I say that? Because I was looking at the research. So let's look at arsenic. So there's a study out right now. So um, let me go further with this. Um, there's now a huge amount of research showing how much disease is caused by arsenic. And I found one study of 4,000 Native Americans showing that one quarter, one third of their major cancers were due to arsenic. And then you look at arsenic with diabetes and stroke and lung cancer, things like this. And you look at the threshold amount of arsenic in a person's body before it starts to increase risk of, 
of these diseases. The standard that's being used is 10 micrograms of arsenic per liter of water. Okay. Now, don't worry about what the actual number is. We look at what's in the general population. One third of our general population is above that threshold. Mm. So one third, third people in the United States are suffering from arsenic toxicity. Then you look at lead. Now, lead's a good example of something where public health has done a good job of decreasing lead in the environment. However, you look at people in my age group, for example, all of my bones were formed when there was lots of lead in the environment. So when men and women go through andropause and menopause and they lose bone, guess what comes out of the bone? Yeah. All that lead, as well as mercury, by the way. Mm. So why is that significant? So you look at the research and a really good study I just looked at that showed that 18% of all-cause mortality and one-third of heart attacks leading to death are due to lead. Now think about, wow, it's not a lot. So when do people start showing up their diseases? In the 50s and 60s. When do people start losing bone? In the 50s and 60s. So anyway, so those are two agents are right at the very top of my list. And we'll go into each one of them because I, you've already spoken about arsenic and its half-life, which is very different than the half-life of lead. Yes. But we will we'll go into that. But t- tell me more about the toxins driving autoimmunity. Okay. So let's start looking at the bisphenols. Now, yeah. notice I said bisphenols, not just bisphenol A. I heard that. Huge correlations with bisphenol A and autoimmune disease. Okay. But the problem is, that while the public is becoming aware of the problems with bisphenol A, well, what are they doing? They're substituting bisphenol S, bisphenol F, bisphenol AF, bisphenol Z. Every bit is toxic. But we just haven't accumulated high enough levels in the humans for them to start showing as much disease correlations, except for areas like infertility. Okay. But bisphenol A is a huge, another huge problem. PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols, huge problem. They were banned over 40 years ago, which is nice. But there were, there were called halogenated hydrocarbons. And by putting fluorine or chlorine or bromine onto these, these chemicals, while well, it gives them their characteristics that we want, like nonstick or anti-insect or anti-flammable, things like that, well, that's all useful. But putting that halogen on those compounds basically and dramatically impairs the ability of biological systems to break them down. Wow. Okay. That, that is a big load do? right there. What do PCBs do? So here we have our normal tissue. When you bind a toxin to a normal tissue, the immune system says, well, wait a minute. We're okay with this molecule. Now you put this other molecule on it. Oh, we want to go after that. Yeah. So I always wonder why. Why do our smart bodies have a disease called autoimmune disease? Okay, why, why would we have autoimmune diseases? Why would, why would we become allergic to our own bodies? What we're finding in the research is we're not becoming allergic to our own bodies. We are becoming, our immune system is saying these are abnormal tissues that have been bound with these toxins. We have to get them out. That's right. And there's collateral damage. So Dr. Vojdani taught me about that one. And he actually Brilliant calls work. them neoantigens or new antigens. Because literally, if you're eating soup out of a can and it's been... Or, or BPAs in plastics or whatever, it has been mm-hmm. sitting in that plastic bottle and then you ingest it, it binds onto the body's own tissues 
as you said, forming that new thing that your immune system says, danger, danger, and starts building missiles or antibodies against that, that new thing. So I, I think Dr. Vajani's work was, was is landmark uh, because it was when I read his work, I realized, aha, that's what's happening in autoimmune disease. Yeah. Now, there's other factors as well. Right. Don't get me wrong. Right. But that binding of chemicals and metals to normal tissues, making them now abnormal and inducing immune reaction, I think that's the core of most autoimmune disease. I think you're you're right on it right there. So this load that you just just mentioned, arsenic, lead, mercury, BPAs, PCBs, I mean, this is a toxic stew for anyone. Yes. And I am seeing this, you know, kind of across the board now. I don't test for BPA and uh, PCBs. And I know it can be very difficult to do some yes. tests for these things. Um, again, going back to the GGT test, right? And to, you know, how poisoned are your uh, is your DNA, by these toxins, would that be a good place to look for the specifically for the PCBs and the BPA or? So the the challenge is, do you want to test for individual toxins or do you want to test for total toxic load? So a point I make when I'm lecturing on this is yes, we can give you lots of examples of research how a specific toxin damages the body. We have to realize it's the total toxic load that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. So my own orientation for people is, fine, if we think we know what toxin we're being exposed to, worthwhile to measure it to see if we're effective getting rid of it. But I'm more concerned about what's your total toxic load. Yeah. And as long as the total toxic load's going down, I know two things are going to happen. Number one is your body's going to start working better. And number two is you're going to start feeling better. So that's why it's so good. So for people, I say, before you get into all this really fancy detox programs and taking this product and the other product, once you spend a couple of weeks doing nothing but to- stopping your toxic load, just stop it and watch what happens to your body. One of the challenges in natural medicine is that people have been kind of taught to expect the fast results you get from drugs. Yeah. Oh, my, 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 I sprained my ankle. Oh, I take some aspirin. Why? 30 minutes later. Wow, does that stuff work good? People expect immediate reactions. But when you're doing these more natural kinds of things, helping the body do its own job, it takes longer. So the reason why I suggest working really hard on avoiding all those short-term toxins is because you'll start seeing the benefit within one to two weeks. Now, for these more deeper toxins, they're going to take us months, maybe even years to get them out of the body. But you have to have some, you have to have some initial positive and success to keep engaged in the more difficult long-term work. Yes, yes, I know that very well. And one that I cite from you often, I hope I didn't massacre this one, but just switching from a conventional diet to organic food in children, haven't we seen the body burden of these non-persistent toxins go down by some, is it as high as 70% just by changing to an organic diet? So blood and urine levels decrease around 75, 80% in four days. (laughs) I mean- Unfortunately, there's still stuff in their fat stores, everything else we have to get rid of. But do that, you know, immediate changes. Do that. You want a quick win? Switch to organic food, especially organic meat and oils, right? Because I know that we're not just what we eat, we're whatever Mm -hmm. we eat ate. And it can, (laughs) right? Right? It can actually um, amplify or, or, you know, when the big fish eats the littler fish that eats the littler fish, those poisons. Thank you. Amplification, it gets much worse. Yeah. So, so and, and also and and the storage materials. 
No point in buying some organic lentil soup if that organic lentil soup is in the can because those cans are lined with plastic and they leach bisphenol A into them. Okay. So it's, uh, it's easy to get paranoid, I have to say. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to be overwhelmed. I mean, yes. it, because it sounds like we are up against a lot, especially when we start thinking about things that are going to be in our fat tissues for a long time. And I've recently worked with some clients whose lead levels were off the chart. And keep in mind, these are women in peri and menopausal years. So this is when, you know, the bone is going to start leaching the things that we have, you know, maybe downloaded from our mothers and that's been safely tucked away in our bones. So let's let's get to it. Let's get to what we can do about these things, um, because you've already mentioned arsenic. And in my research, I found there were two places that arsenic was really prevalent. One was in rice and the other is in well water. Are those in your research? What have you found are the biggest? So let, let, let me broaden that statement. a little yeah. bit. So the primary food sources are rice and chicken. Rice and now, chicken. chicken is not supposed to have as much arsenic in it now. But there's too many examples where the farmers are ignoring that that guidance. Um, then the other thing is water. So water is either a private well or a public water supply. And there are many private wells that have high levels of arsenic that the population is not aware of, particularly, for example, in Maine. Um, the uh, In general, the uh, the safe levels of water, uh, arsenic in water is considered, is considered 10 micrograms per liter. Interestingly enough, very similar to that urinary number I just told you, okay? So... Um, there are wells in Maine with 3,000 micrograms of arsenic per, per liter of water. Wow. And they had a human sense of diabetes and cancer and all these other kinds of things. But even our public water supplies are of concern. So 10% of the public water supplies have arsenic levels known to induce disease in humans. Only half the public water supplies have reported their levels. Why? This is a $50 test. Because remediation in a public water supply is pretty expensive. Yeah. So I'm, you know, maybe I'm overly pessimistic about government, okay? But um, when so much of the public water supplies are inducing disease, mm. we have a problem. Mm -hmm. So what can people do for themselves? Can a plain old, like a, a carbon block water filter that removes the chlorine and fluoride also no, get rid of arsenic? Well, okay. Okay. Uh, as far as I know. Okay. Okay. Um, so carbon block filters will remove some arsenic, not much of it. Arsenic, there are some new technologies evolving. Commercially, what's typically used are what are called reverse osmosis. Ah. Okay. So um, I recommend everybody check your arsenic levels. And if the arsenic levels are high, find out where it's coming from. Because in nearest I can tell, arsenic is the number one toxin we're being exposed to. Wow. That's that's huge. That's a, that's a big statement. And people can get at-home water tests, right? You can also check your public water supply. Like you said, I don't know if, if every county is going to share what the right. levels are in the water, yes. but you need to do yourself a favor yes. and get that test done. Yes. Okay. That's huge. And, and is organic or pasture-raised chicken at risk of having those arsenic levels as well? And talk to us about rice. Um, I've heard there are certain forms of rice that are better than others. What can we so, do? So the, a few things that are critical here with rice. Whether the rice has arsenic in or not, or not depends primarily upon the water it's being grown in. So if it's being grown in water high in arsenic, for some reason, rice is very good at absorbing the arsenic. Okay, so that's where most is going to come from. 
and it doesn't matter whether it's organic or, or chemi chemically grown food. Mm -hmm. um, it's what's the, what's the water supply. Now, the good news is that you can remove most of the arsenic from rice by simply boiling it for a few minutes um, and then throw out the water before you cook it. So boil for a few minutes in water uh, and throw out the water and cook it again and then do the final cooking. That gets rid of most of the arsenic. Oh, that's a great hack. I like that. That's, that's helpful and hopeful. And the chicken, where are they getting the arsenic from? So primarily because it's being added to their feed um, as to get down, keep down parasites and because it makes the chicken plumper and with more white meat, which they get the more money for. Okay. So a good, you know, reputable farmer should no longer be using arsenic. Now, if you got a farmer who's moved from using arsenic and say, oh, we got free range uh, chickens now, but that free range used to have arsenic in it from all the past chicken feed with arsenic in it. Well, it's going to take a while to get rid of that arsenic. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Something else we should be very mindful of. Um, and let's go from easiest to do something about to the, the mm -hmm. toughest. And the BPAs is this and, and the BPSs and BP, you know, the whole alphabet soup. Right. Best thing to do is to avoid plastic. Avoid, is that avoidance? Avoid, avoid the plastics. Mm -hmm. Pure and simple. Okay. So no, no plastic storage material. Don't buy anything stored in plastic. Don't buy anything stored in, in cans. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're, you're going to dramatically decrease your bisphenol A levels. Yeah. I mean, things like uh, cash register receipts. Mm -hmm. So that, that thermal sensitive ink has a bunch of bisphenols in it. So when they offer you the, um, the, you know, the receipts at the grocery store, unless you're wearing gloves, don't take them. Yeah. Beautiful point. Dr. Vojdani taught me about this one too. He said, whatever you do, do not store oil in plastic because it degrades. The plastic is very easy to get into yes. the oil. Yeah. So you look at our house, look at our olive oil, look at our nut butters, things like that. They're all in glass. We don't buy anything in plastic unless there's absolutely no choice. Okay. Yeah. That, that happens occasionally, but fortunately, not very often anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so helpful. All right. Next on the list that we can do something about, I'm I'm debating. I think it would be mercury. Um, well, mercury uh, is pretty straightforward. Um, again, we're ignoring people with industrial exposure uh, or um, their or their job. So if somebody's working a dental office, they're gonna get they're gonna get the mercury exposure. The primary source of mercury for people are silver fillings so-called silver fillings, which are actually 55% mercury, even though they call them silver fillings, uh, so the amalgam fillings, and then fish. And basically the big fish, like a big tuna, has a thousand times as much mercury as a small sardine. Yeah. So by simply making sure you don't have fillings in your mouth and um, only eating small fish, that will take care of the mercury. Now, it'll take time, but that'll take care of the mercury. Okay, well, that's very hopeful because a lot of us already have had those amalgam fillings removed and we try to do it safely, but we okay. still have very high levels of mercury in our blood. And are you saying just look, you know, overall your toxic load is what matters most because I, okay. well, let me go a little further. Yeah, so please. you can speed that you can speed up to elimination of mercury. Okay. okay. So now let's talk about ways to do that. You have kind of interventionist ways where we use drugs and I'll tell you about that. Or you can say, well, what's the body's own natural mechanism? Can we help that? So how does the body get rid of mercury? There's a number of methods, but the majority of mercury, as near as I can tell, by the way, I'm, I'm, I want to be clear, you gave me some very nice accolades. I'm still learning. You know, this is a huge topic. I'm still learning. Yeah. Here's my current understanding. The body, and by the way, I'm sure about this part. Uh, it's, it's been shown in animals and reproducing humans. 
humans dump about 1% of the by load of mercury into the gut every day. 1%. That sounds pretty good. We should be able to get rid of mercury pretty easily. But then we reabsorb 95% of what we just dumped into the gut. Now, why were our smart bodies waste all this metabolic energy, particularly glutathione, and then just reabsorb the mercury? Because when we evolved as a species, we had 100 to 150 grams of fiber in our diet every day. And, we, and when we learned to dump stuff into the gut we want to get rid of, it bound to fiber and out it went. Now the average person consumes 15 to 20 grams of fiber a day. So there's not enough fiber there to absorb the toxins. So sometimes I'll see a patient who is super sensitive to everything. You can't give them vitamins. Whatever you do, they, they react. If you can't do anything other than increasing fiber, then we're supporting the body's own, own normal metabolic processes, okay? And another thing we can do is recognize that for that mercury, uh, we're using glutathione as primary way to get across blood-brain barrier, out of cells, in, through the liver, into the gut, et cetera. So I can increase glutathione and acetylcysteine, NAC for short. And acetylcysteine increases excretion. Now I noticed the FDA is trying to pull this on the marketplace, which is appalling because it's been used for years at high dosages for a long time without serious effects. Uh, you have to wonder what their reasons are. So if they get rid of uh, NAC, you can use whey powder. So whey powder is high in cysteine and that'll increase uh, glutathione, levels, glutathione levels as well. With a caution for people with autoimmunity who are staying away from dairy, that would be maybe right, right. problematic, right? So yes. is there anything aside from whey that they might choose that could so there are a number of foods that are rich cysteine. in cysteine mm -hmm. so and just kind of look at cysteine rich foods and go okay. in the direction okay well. great now if you want to take a drug approach i like using a, a, a drug orally called dmsa and i only use small dose i use 250 milligrams every third day and that will help chelate out the mercury and i like and that's a much lower dose than you'll see in the research literature because um uh, when i'm talking to people I'm often talking to people who aren't my patients. And so I want to do something that's really safe so mm -hmm. people aren't likely to run into trouble. Yeah. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Um, and you want to make sure in any event that you're pooping every day. I mean, we talk a lot about yes. this and, and especially before you embark on any detox program, because you don't want to recirculate that, right? I mean, that, right. that would be, it probably I get the, becomes. I got the gut working properly. Gut. I got the liver working properly. I get the kidneys working properly. Don't do a detox program until all three of those are working. But don't bother to get those three working if you're still eating a toxic diet, okay? Yeah. Still expose yourself to toxins. That's why I say in my book, here's yeah. an eight-week program. Thank you. For get two this, weeks, for two weeks book. stop the toxins. Mm -hmm. Then two weeks, clean up the gut. Two weeks, get the liver functioning properly. Two weeks, to help restore the kidneys. And there it is. There it is. Couldn't be more simple. Okay, so now we've brought down the load of mercury Let's move on to lead because this is going to take a little bit more patience. I had a client recently whose lead was off the chart of what mm -hmm. they calculated, and that was a little concerning about what to do and mm -hmm. how long she might be at this. Same protocol I do for mercury. Same thing. Same protocol for mercury. So now it's not going to work for cadmium, okay? It's not going to work for arsenic, but it turns out lead and mercury that same protocol works. And I've done that on enough people where I've got clear data showing it's an effective intervention. That's fantastic. I just have a little thing to say about mercury um, because a lot of people that I work with have MS. And there was a practitioner by the name of Patrick Kingsley in the UK, or I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's since passed, 
but he was an expert in MS and he had seen, I think more than 4,000 patients. And he said of the 4,000 patients that he had with MS, only five did not suffer from mercury toxicity. Wow. Interesting. That is quite a statement, huh? It is. Yes. So success leaves clues, right? I mean, if, if you're dealing with these things, these are Mm -hmm. toxins that we need to look at, right? Yes. Yes. Mercury is extremely damaging to the neurological system. Extremely. So you combine mercury plus vitamin D deficiency plus a leaky gut. Guess what? (laughs) That's where it all starts breaking down. Yeah. And, and would you say in, in the world that you're in, in this naturopathic medicine, you don't look at disease per se, you look at what are the pillars of health? What are the principles of health? So when somebody has high levels of exposure to toxins and low vitamin D it's and a leaky gut, it's the setup for the perfect storm. So whatever right. your weak link is, right? For me, exactly. it happened to be MS. Exactly. Or, so here, right? here's what sets up the disease, but what you actually get Depends upon your genetics. It's your flavor of genetics. Whatever the weak link is, I don't care. It almost doesn't matter what the label is. The reason the label is important is that somebody in Western medicine wants to diagnose you. And I think, I do think there's help Mm -hmm. in that, but then to give you a drug to treat the symptoms of that dis-ease and, and that's not what you practice. And thank you for, founding Bastyr University and being the the instigator of a world of naturopathic doctors. It's what a gift you've given to the world. Well, thank you. Let's call it health medicine. Health medicine. Look, we've had the greatest burden of chronic disease in every age group ever in human history. Now, this in the context of conventional medicine, disease treatment medicine, we gave them all the money all the authority, all the power, all the social adulation, and this is what we got. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not anti-conventional medicine because it also gave us a lot of really good things. That's right. But we're in this trouble now. It's because we only did this part. We have to do the other part of making people healthier. Yeah. And that was ignored. People thought, doesn't matter what I do. I'll watch the television commercials and eat this crap and that crap and and all those really pretty people are smoking those cigarettes and wow, I can do that too. Right. Well, and then as your body breaks down, you then go to these people who then give you a drug to typically turn off the symptom of your body's messages yes. telling you, hey, it's not working. I'm breaking down. Oh, you gave me this, me- you gave me this drug and oh, I don't have symptoms anymore. I guess everything's fine. No, it's not. Everything's not fine. The body's still breaking down. It's, we could speak for a long time on that. (laughs) And the bottom line is, it is our responsibility as human beings Mm -hmm. to take to be the CEOs of our own health and well being, and be vigilant. And, And there's the precautionary principle that Europe has been practicing for decades, which is, you know, just take good care about what you put in your body and on yourself. Assume that it's going to be harmful. Don't wait until we find out that it's harmful. And and when you practice these principles of health, like you're educating us to do, what's the end result? Wellness, health, health, well-being, right? (laughs) I'm I'm actually getting more radical the older I've gotten. 
So, you know, when I start, first started this as a student 50 years ago, it was, it was unpopular and they called us all these kinds of mean names and things like this. Well, now I'm 50 years later. And what do I see? Research supports us. And we're now showing that following the medical model only gets a lot more disease. And personally, family and friends in our age group, they're either dead, have major disease, or are done with life. And I was thinking, wait a minute. I'm still functioning just fine. What, where, what happened to everybody? Okay. <laughs> where did everybody go? <laughs> yeah, where'd you go? Where, well, what was happening was they were following that. Doesn't matter what I do, the doctors will take care of me. Doesn't work that way. No, no. And now we have guidebooks, and this is so hopeful that we have your book, which is so practical and so helpful. And I really want to encourage people to get this book. Is Amazon or your local bookstore or those good places to go to get it? Sure. Barnes and Normal, Amazon, Anywhere. local bookstores. It's readily available. Yeah. Yes. And if people want to stay in touch with you to learn more about what you're doing and textbooks that you're writing and updating, how, how would you like them to be in touch or to check stuff out? Okay. So I'm not very good on the social media thing. I need to get on that someday. My job right now is, is doing the teaching. Um, I, I don't see very many patients anymore. I'll see maybe a handful of patients on a kind of concierge ba- basis to keep my hand in it. But over long periods of time, I can't see people individual. I have to do these big things. Yeah. Well, and that's why having a book like this that you can do on your own, you don't need a practitioner because honestly, removing the things that you've talked about removing and, and giving the reasons why is going to get people so much of the way, if not all the way there by itself, right? Yeah. I Well, I am so grateful yes. that you made time to speak with me and to impart your wisdom over the decades that you've condensed so beautifully into this book and what you do to teach us how we can take control of our health outcomes. And I wondered, is there anything that you'd like to, to end with that you didn't get a chance to say that you would like to share? Well, first off, thank you for letting me kind of go off my little spouts of philosophy. It's nice to kind of talk about the big picture, not just the specifics. You know, um, I think it comes down it's pretty straightforward. Our bodies have a tremendous ability to be healthy and a lot of ability to resist the environment. I mean, you look at the COVID-19 challenge that we had. Remember, the vast majority of people either didn't even know they had the disease or knocked it off very quickly because the immune system is doing what it's supposed to do. Okay. So while we have things like vaccinations, which is great to have them available, and we have drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivernectin, things like that, that's great. But think about how about the next pandemic? How about the next epidemic? How about, you know, how about recognizing that as we've made the human population weaker, we've become more susceptible to disease, not just chronic disease, but infections as well. So people have a choice. Take yourself, make your body as strong as possible, and dramatically decrease your risk of getting any of these diseases. Or just stay with the standard American diet. And uh, you're going to depend upon high technology medicine to keep you alive. And eventually your body's going to break and that's going to be it. Well, it's a powerful message and a really essential one, especially with the aging of all of us, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and as evidenced by, you know, people that in our peer groups that are not doing as well, or just think that diabetes is inevitable. Everybody gets diabetes. No, not everybody gets diabetes. Everybody gets autoimmune disease. There is so much that we can do to turn the ship around. And yes. so I'm, I'm very hopeful about that, even though it seems like the external circumstances are, you know, escalating in terms of the, the number, the sheer number of toxins in the environment. Mm-hmm but we can do so much. So you can. thank you so much, Dr. Pizzorno. I loved having you here and talking with you and I look forward to the next time. Well, thank you for your kind introduction and kind interview and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Be well, my friend. Give my best to Laura. All the best. Take care. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you feel inspired, please leave a quick review so other people can find it too. Now, if you want to beat autoimmune and thrive, make sure you sign up for my free video training at freeautoimmunetraining.com. That's freeautoimmunetraining.com. And watch the first video right away. Take good care. Bye for now.